Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the podcast for this week's book review. Today, you've tuned into Unknown Friends, Season 2, Episode 36. And we're in the midst of a series of book reviews of the Seven Chronicles of Narnia. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions. And if you're interested in learning more about me and my plays, just visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for joining me for today's book review, and be sure to catch the earlier episodes in our current series, featuring the first two books in the Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian. Today, we're on to the third Narnia book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So C.S. Lewis wrote this book in quick succession after the first two, He finished Prince Caspian at the end of 1949, and then he had the voyage written just two months later, by the end of February 1950. Now that said, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader does have some interesting structural differences from all of the other Narnia books. It is, of course, a voyage, and so it doesn't actually take place in Narnia itself at all. It takes place in the world in which you'll find the Kingdom of Narnia, but the whole story takes place at sea and on various strange islands the voyagers encounter. And so the land of Narnia itself is never seen in this book. So that is one difference. Related to this, another thing that's unique about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in contrast to all the other chronicles is that it's structured somewhat episodically. It does have one main story goal that the whole story aims at, but much of the interest of the story actually comes from a series of mini-adventures that are more or less unrelated. Um, There's no one main antagonist in the story, no enemy force that the heroes are fighting from first to last, uh, which is unlike all the other six Narnia books. So that makes the book feel, I think, a little more relaxed, uh, like the stakes aren't quite as high as they are in some of the books. Although, that said, our heroes still face plenty of very serious dangers along their voyage. So let me take you through the book's actual plot instead of just making generalizations about it. So The Voyage of the Dawn Treader features the return to Narnia of the younger two Pevensey siblings, Edmund and Lucy, but not Peter and Susan, who were told at the end of Prince Caspian that they are getting too old to return to Narnia. But Edmund and Lucy do inadvertently bring another relative into the Narnian world with them, their cousin Eustace, who is, I think, probably one of the Chronicle's most memorable characters. He's introduced from the very first line of the book, which is, by the way, among the best first lines ever, I think. Certainly, I'd say it's the best first line among the seven chronicles of Narnia. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader starts with this sentence. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. One wonders if C.S. Lewis felt this personally, this misfortune of having a certain kind of name. Lewis's full name was Clive Staples Lewis, 
which does seem a little unfair. And from a young age, Lewis insisted on being called Jack instead, and he kept that nickname throughout his life. Wise choice. So, the uh, the Pevensey's cousin is named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserves it. He is a bit of a bully, he's a know-it-all, he is selfish and cowardly, and he's a terrible complainer. Edmund and Lucy try to be nice to him, but find him horribly difficult to get along with. And so it's much to their dismay that at the start of the story, when they find themselves again magically whisked away into the world of Narnia, they realize that Eustace has been whisked away with them. And Eustace has no appreciation for a magical land with talking animals and noble warriors. Eustace thinks of himself as very modern and progressive and realistic, and all this is is backward and ridiculous. So, as you can imagine, Eustace makes himself quite a pest to his cousins and to everyone he meets in the world of Narnia. But, as I said, this book is a little different from the others in that none of the story takes place on land in the kingdom of Narnia itself. So it's a sea voyage that the Pevensies and Eustace find themselves joining. Caspian, whom the Pevensey siblings had helped to become king in the second chronicle, has now been king for a few years and is on a new quest to try to find seven Narnian lords who sailed east away from Narnia years ago and were never heard from again. So he has only just begun this voyage when the three children from our world join him on board his ship, the Dawn Treader. With Caspian, um, besides his crew, is another character from the previous book in the Narnia series, Reepcheep the Mouse, who I didn't get a chance to mention last week, but he is a marvelous character uh, to whom you could devote hours of discussion. Reepicheep, the talking mouse, is as valiant a warrior as you will ever meet in the Narnian world or any other. He makes up for his small size with the biggest, bravest soul you can imagine. So he is he's a classic chivalrous knight, intent on doing his duty and also maintaining his own and other people's honor and acting with courage and courtesy, and readily sacrificing himself for others. He's fiercely loyal to King Caspian, and to Edmund and Lucy, who were of course a king and queen years ago when they reigned in Narnia after the defeat of the White Witch. And then above all, Reepicheep is loyal to Aslan, the highest of all high kings. Everything else is secondary to that allegiance for him. And Reepicheep has a special reason for being a part of this quest of Caspians to explore the Eastern Ocean. Not only is he on board the Dawn Treader to help search for the missing Narnian lords, but he also has a personal desire to sail east, because everyone believes that Aslan's own home country, which no one has ever seen, is in the far east, beyond the Eastern Sea. No one knows what Aslan's country is like or 
how exactly to get there, but it's common knowledge that Aslan always comes to the land of Narnia from the east over the sea. So Reepicheep hopes that the Dawn Treader will travel east in its quest all the way to Aslan's country, if it's a place that can actually be sailed to, which nobody knows for certain. But whether it's possible or not, the point is that this is Reepicheep's deepest desire to see Aslan's country for himself, even if that would mean leaving the land of Narnia behind forever. His greatest hopes rest in Aslan, and seeking Aslan defines Reepicheep's life. That's what makes him the, the wonderful character he is. So Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace join Caspian, Reepicheep, and the rest of the Dawn Treader's crew on their journey across the sea in search of adventure, the Seven Lords, and Aslan's country in the Utter East. And they encounter many different adventures along the way. They first land in a set of islands owned by Narnia, but it has been so long since a king of Narnia has been in contact that these islanders have more or less forgotten that they're not technically self-governing. So that leads to some interesting conflict, and it takes some careful strategy for Caspian and his companions, first of all, to survive this adventure, and secondly, to do some good for these islanders along the way, because the current governor of the islands is not a wise or just ruler at all. So after this first adventure, the crew of the Dawn Treader sails on and lands on many different islands with various strange people and dangers awaiting them. There's a storm, a sea serpent, a magician, um, an island with cursed water, an island with invisible inhabitants, and much, much more. And as the ship sails steadily eastward, the voyagers gradually begin to find the seven Narnian lords they're seeking one by one, or at least traces of them. So that's enough, I think, to introduce you to the storyline. Um, and I'll just remark now that in some ways, I think this is C.S. Lewis's Odyssey story. So the ancient epic poems by Homer, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, have shaped Western literature in so many ways that you can't even fully explain or trace them all. But many, many later works of fiction draw inspiration from the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think sometimes it's not even fully conscious. Western literature as a whole has just internalized Homer's character and plot types and themes, and so they emerge somewhat organically in a lot of later fiction. So all that to say, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader bears some obvious resemblances to Homer's Odyssey in that it tells the story of a sea voyage through strange waters and past strange islands with sorcerers and mythical creatures and other perils. I'm not going to read deeply into this resemblance to the Odyssey, but I do just think it's worth noting. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there are in fact two significant references 
to the character of Odysseus, who makes the voyage of the Odyssey. Technically, the reference isn't to Homer's version of the character, but to Dante's from the Divine Comedy, where Odysseus's name is rendered as Ulysses, um, but it is the same character. So very near the end of Lewis's book, King Caspian is insisting on sailing on into the Utter East, even if that means leaving the known world behind for good and abandoning his duties as the king of Narnia. And his friends tell him that, no, he cannot do that. He's not free to pursue that goal and abandon the Narnian people who depend on his leadership. And Edmund and Reepicheep then make the reference to Odysseus or Ulysses, saying that if this is what it takes to prevent Caspian from sailing east, they're willing to disarm and bind him until he comes to his senses, like Ulysses' crewmen did to him to prevent him from following the call of the sirens. That is the most explicit reference to Ulysses, but then there's another pretty clear one when the Dawn Treader discovers one of the missing Narnian lords, and there's a little speech from him that echoes a speech Ulysses gave his crewmen, according to Dante in the Divine Comedy. And the essence of the speech is a rallying call to keep sailing east to pursue adventure and explore the unknown. So even though Caspian doesn't give this particular speech, it mirrors his desire. So we've got some interesting conversation going on here between Lewis, Dante, and Homer. Ulysses, or Odysseus, is a very flawed character. And Dante actually puts him pretty deep in hell in the Divine Comedy, despite his motives that might sound noble. His insatiable drive to explore actually causes him to abandon his duties to his kingdom and his family. And that's exactly what Caspian, at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is tempted to do. Even though it's in many ways a noble thing he's pursuing— the desire to find Aslan's country in the Far East. Even so, his first duty should be to what Aslan has specifically called him to, which is governing the land of Narnia, not exploring. Honestly, when I was younger, I don't know that I ever fully understood this temptation of Caspian and why it would be so wrong for him to keep sailing east, but I think I get it now. I see what Lewis is doing here, and the comparison and contrast with Ulysses has helped me understand it more fully. In essence, I think what we can take away is that sometimes, even if a thing is good in itself, it may be wrong for you if it would steer you out of the path in which God is leading you. Your duty is to trust and obey him, his direction, even when other people are led in a different direction. Reepicheep's path does lie eastward. That's his calling. But Caspian's path lies homeward, back to Narnia, because that is the duty Aslan has placed on his life. And there's no justification for any choice in life that overrides obedience to God. 
Now, something I did grasp better as a child was Eustace and his transformation brought about by Aslan. I won't go into the details so as not to spoil this part of the story, but it takes something drastic to reveal to Eustace what he's truly like inside. At the start of the story, Eustace has an ugly soul, almost a, almost a subhuman soul. He is so self-absorbed that he habitually cuts off any possibility of connecting with other people. And that's in many ways what makes us human, what defines us, is how we relate to others, and above all, how we relate to God. But Eustace doesn't like other people. He doesn't respect others, he doesn't value them, he doesn't feel sympathy for them, or think about other people at all, really, unless he's thinking about how much he himself suffers at the hands of others, or so he imagines. He is so inwardly turned that he cannot see anything outside himself and his own concerns. And so, of course, his vision of everything, including himself, is horribly skewed because the individual is not a reliable reference point. We may think we're the center of the universe, and so we think we are an objective reference point, but no, we were made to orbit something other than ourselves. And so we are not stable, independent reference points. And so Eustace's blindness, his wildly inaccurate perception of himself and the world around him, is really astonishing and convicting. He deceives himself masterfully, construing everything so that he is always a victim and he is always right. In the book, Lewis shares excerpts of Eustace's journal that he keeps while on board the Dawn Treader, and these excerpts are so eye-opening. For instance, the very first journal entry we see begins like this. The first day for ages when I have been able to write. We have been driven before a hurricane for 13 days and nights. I know that because I kept a careful count, though the others all say it was only 12. Pleasant to be embarked on a dangerous voyage with people who can't even count right. <laughs> As you can see, um, one of those instances of when the whole world has gone mad except you, you should consider the possibility that you may be the one truly mad and everyone else is sane. But of course, Eustace doesn't consider this for a moment. He never questions his premise that he is the true, reliable, reference point for everything. So, this is Eustace. He has major problems, and the core of them all is this self-absorption, this inability to consider anyone or anything outside himself. But even Eustace can change, and his transformation has always been one of my favorite parts of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Without revealing how it actually happens, I will just say it requires Eustace's willingness and Aslan's strength, which I think accurately mirrors transformation that happens in you and me. God 
will not change us without our consent, but we can't change ourselves without his power. So Eustace has to surrender to Aslan and allow him to strip away the ugly selfishness that has defined Eustace up to this point. And that transformation is painful for Eustace, but so worth the pain in every way. Also, um, I'll just add, the transformation does then take time to fully change Eustace's character. There's an undeniable, powerful beginning to the change, but then it requires time and practice for Eustace to shake off all his habits of selfishness. But once he makes that first choice to let Aslan help change him, good things start happening in Eustace right away. I love the way Lewis describes this. After Aslan and Eustace's meeting, Lewis writes, It would be nice, and fairly nearly true, to say that, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And then lastly, I just have to mention Lucy for a moment, because she too faces temptations in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I think because this novel is somewhat episodic and doesn't feature a single main villain, the heroes must face inner antagonists instead. So Caspian is tempted, Eustace must be transformed, and even Lucy is tested and needs Aslan's help to overcome her struggles. And sort of like with Caspian, when I was younger, I didn't fully understand some of Lucy's temptations when I was reading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but I think I understand them better now. And more importantly, what I did pick up on as a kid, and I appreciate even more deeply now, is how Lucy came through her inner conflicts. And that was, quite simply, by looking at Aslan. Aslan only makes a couple of brief appearances in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but his presence is felt almost everywhere. People talk about him quite a lot, and characters get glimpses of his face, or something like it, in key moments when they need direction. So Lucy, during her main temptation, is looking through a book of magical spells during one of the Dawn Treader's many adventures, and Lucy sees a spell that would make her beautiful beyond the lot of mortals. And she actually sees magical images in the book of what she would look like if she said the spell. And she's very tempted to say it, and almost does, but she then sees a picture of a lion's face in the book, And Lewis says she suddenly became afraid and quickly turned the page without saying the spell. And then, a little while later, after she has continued looking through the book for a while and has actually spoken two of the spells in it, she hears soft steps behind her, and she turns around, and then this is what Lewis writes. Then her face lit up, till, for a moment, but of course she didn't know it, She looked almost as beautiful as that other Lucy in the picture. 
and she ran forward with a little cry of delight, and with her arms stretched out. For what stood in the doorway was Aslan himself, the lion, the highest of all high kings. It's sort of difficult to explain, but I got that as a child. Lewis didn't have to write an essay about how God inspires both fear and love. He just shows it. And he doesn't have to explain that both the fear and the love of God can help guide us to make right choices in our life. He just shows it. And that detail of Lucy being radiantly beautiful when she looks at Aslan with joy and love That made a deep impression on me from the first time I read it, and it rings true. We have the incredible privilege of reflecting God's beauty when we look at him with a heart that's open to him. And somehow, nothing else matters when we look in the face of God but him. Now, I just want to conclude with one more quotation from the book that relates to this. Another one of those lines from the Chronicles of Narnia that has embedded itself in my mind. And I think this quotation is helpful even in getting a broad perspective on the value of these books, the purpose behind Lewis's writing of the whole series. So at the end of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Edmund and Lucy are told that they will never be able to get back into Narnia again. And as you'd imagine, this devastates them. They have loved their adventures in Narnia and the friends they've made there. But Aslan tells them, you are too old, children, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. But then Lucy's response is so enlightening. She says, it isn't Narnia, you know. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? And then Lewis gives us the very simple key to the whole series in just a few lines. He writes, But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are are you there too, sir? said Edmund. I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little... You may know me better there. So that is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I hope you have enjoyed today's discussion of this, the third chronicle of Narnia, and I hope you return next week for my review of Book 4, The Silver Chair. With all four of the Pevensey siblings having outgrown Narnia, we have somewhat new main characters in The Silver Chair, Eustace returns as one of our heroes now, and he brings with him his friend named Jill, who is entirely new to the Chronicles, but she is a character well worth getting to know. So come back next Wednesday for our discussion of The Silver Chair. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks so much for listening. 